Welcome to Southern Fried Fantasy, a podcast for readers and writers, where Southern authors talk about books set in the region they call home. Book lovers beware, your TBR pile is about to get taller than high cotton. Right. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. I'm your host, Bob Magoo with Tales by Bob. And this week, I am super excited to have on Martin Shannon. Uh, I had the pleasure, I met Martin on uh, the Urban Fantasy subreddit, where he was doing a series uh, called Marty's First Look, where he would he would buy books and uh, just kind of look at them, look at the cover, give his thoughts on the cover, read the back of the book and read the first page. And I was lucky to be one of the folks that uh, they did a video on. And so I've kept him in mind and now he's here on the podcast. So Martin, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed that, uh, that, that video. Um, it's one of those, like, I saw you kind of quit doing them. Uh, if you go to do them again, I'm sure there will be people listening to this that will reach out to you and be like, "Oh, hey, let me send you a book." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm. I, somebody made a joke the other day about that that uh, you could do like a Tinder for um, podcasters and video makers looking for uh, people to interview and video, and it's like you'd get you know thousands of people in your DM sending you you know, unsolicited background and questions. <laughs> yeah. Scripts they thought about finishing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I did. I briefly did a podcast uh, that was just music based and uh, mm-hmm. for like indie music. And uh, I was with an organization that that's what they did. They supported indie music. And I was just reaching out to these bands like, Hey, you know, would you send me a few tracks that I can play? Um, and then like, you know, at first it was just that, but then as it started to pick up, like they, they actually started sending me stuff like, Oh, let me send you some patches and buttons and physical CDs. And when I was like, wow, is this, is this what being famous is like? <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden you're looking at me like, this is what it's like to be wildly hot. Isn't it? it yeah. Is, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. And so of course, of course, uh, nothing else I've ever done. Have people been like, Ooh, let me send you things. <laughs> so well, all right, so let's dive in, uh, start things sure. off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what ties you to the South? Okay, so I'm a, I'm a Floridian, pretty much born and raised. Um, the, uh, I've been down here in different parts of the state pretty much my whole life. Um, traveled all over it, seen uh, kind of all the weird. And that's really what inspired me to, uh, to write the, you know, the affectionately named Tales of Weird Florida. Um, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to try to change the, the narrative a little bit um, to the extent that I could away from the glitz and glamour, say, of the Miami Vice, uh, you know, the beaches and mm. the, God, I'm showing my age by bringing up Miami Vice, aren't I? <laughs> um, but uh, to kind of, you know, the burn notice, if you will, maybe. Yeah. The, uh, the the glitz and glamour nightlife of South Beach, uh, which is a part of, of Weird Florida, but it's just a part. And I think that's that's a piece that a lot of people see on TV, but then they sort of miss the the rest of the state. And the rest mm-hmm. of the state is just it's you know, it's 
three dollars of weird in a in a one dollar bill. I mean, it's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a lot of strange, right? So I mean, yeah. you got the middle of the state with with absolutely nothing. It looks like the the African Serengeti. It is mm. flat as a pancake with with you know squat palms, uh, palmettos, uh, sables, and just nothing for miles in both directions. You know, one lane highways that rip through the middle of it. The old um, uh, Yeehaw Junction. Yes, there mm-hmm. is a town in Florida called Yeehaw Junction. Um, you know, we have got all kinds of strange, all kinds. So I, I wanted to try to capture as much of that as I could. And I wanted to try to give more, you know, what we would say, more supernatural uh, oddities and weird reasons behind the things that yeah. the, the sort of Florida manish meme that, that you get from being here and, and yeah. you know, from leaving here and hearing about it when you go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I love that. And so we're going to address two things right off the bat. One, um, there's a, there's a strong through thread in the South that Florida isn't the South and I've never held with that. Um, the Florida is very much the South. Uh, I joke that the panhandle is, uh, is really just South Alabama. It just doesn't know it yet. Um, yeah, no, very much is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Pensacola is just Montgomery with a beach. Uh, right. right. And we would trade you Tallahassee in a minute. If we thought <laughs> yeah. So the other thing is, um, this is something, you know, the, the Florida man cliche that's out there. This is something that I, I learned a few years ago um, is the reason that that's such a cliche is Florida's laws are different. Uh, when right. someone gets arrested, it actually describes what they were like doing when they got arrested. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like, it's not in Alabama. If someone got arrested while drunkenly dry, right. You know, wrestling a deer on main street, it would, all it would say is drunk, you know, public intoxication. There would be no mm-hmm. mention of a deer anywhere, but in Florida, right. if you're drunk in the street and wrestling a gator, they actually put that. So yeah, front, yeah, all of it. And it's yeah. the, the national and international news, which is why we seem so strange. They're sunshine laws. It's why yeah. we seem so strange. It's why there are whole, you know, Reddit's direct, you know, or, or subreddit like uh, sites dedicated to Florida man because yeah, it's Florida man or Florida woman, and then they'll describe exactly what craziness, you know, attempted to smoke squid, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, while driving uh, under the influence, right? You know, it, oh yeah, oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be clear, every place in the mm-hmm. South is very weird. Uh, there's yes. weird shit that happens everywhere. But we just don't have the same laws where we uh, where we put that in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, no, we yeah, we do. We put it in the paper. We put it in the you know. We put it on the evening news. It's uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what's great is that, that sometimes I'll you know I'll read or, or watch one of those and I'll kind of shake my head. My wife will be like, "Did you did you do something like that in a book?" I'm like, "Yeah." I, huh. <laughs> I didn't think it get quite that strange, but yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, and we uh, cover that right in the very first chapter of the uh, of the book. Um, kind of lean into that sort of um, that sort of concept, and we try to give some some more supernatural, if you will, uh, mm. reasonings behind some of the some of the odd we'll, we'll call odd Florida man, Florida woman actions. Um, yeah. In the uh, in the first chapter of the book, and we we take it from there and into the the whole series. Yeah, I've I've actually started reading. Uh, your first one. Uh, okay. And uh, I, I can, I can attest quality read so far. Um, Good. Uh, it you. was, it is something that uh, 
uh, I did Taekwondo growing up <laughs> and, and just kind of reading this opening scene, I was like thinking back to when I was young, if how yeah. that would have played out in, you know, Greenville, Alabama, like it, it was a yeah. neat read. Uh, so I haven't finished it yet. It, I, I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, there's okay. uh, there not enough hours in the day, uh, of course. but I'm enjoying it so far. So good. Um, but so yeah, you, you do more than just uh, tales of weird Florida. I see that you're you've really gotten into Vela here lately. Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm one of those uh, one of those oddball kind of pulp fictiony sort of writers. I like to write on a on an old timey like uh, device. It's a, an e ink typewriter, and mm-hmm. I will literally write on this e ink typewriter every morning at four a.m. for uh, about two hours. Uh, produce mm. around 3,000 words and yeah. then take my daughter off to school and, you know, start my day. The, uh, so that means, you know, every day, you know, I mean, in, in eight days, I've produced a novella. Yeah. In, you know, 16 to 21 days, I could produce a novel. Um, I have written officially as per the company that, that manages the cloud backups for the typewriter. I've written over a million words on that device alone. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I've just I have so much content that mm-hmm. um, Amazon's Vela service was something I could try to use to um, to get it in front of people. And I yeah. think that if, if, if you're talking to anybody, that's the perennial challenge, right? That's oh God, the, that's the forever struggle, right? If you if you know anyone, listeners, who's an author, um, you know, buy when I even so much buy their books, tell sixty thousand of your closest friends to buy their books and to and to read you know to write reviews and comments and maybe make really cool dancing tiktok videos i've been trying to get my daughter to do that (laughs) i'm not quite hip enough for that the fact that i use the word hip would probably make her cringe but right (laughs) no i feel that i mean that's really the the struggle um and you know if you're if you're listening at the point that you're you're listening to this podcast by the time we get here i i hope that you've uh come to realize that whether you go indie publishing, small press publishing, or traditional publishing, um, you're not going to really get any help with your marketing. Uh, even like if you get published by Penguin, you know they're not going to put any money uh, in marketing behind your book until your book sell. You know if your book sells ten thousand copies, you know right out the gate, they'll be oh okay, let's put a little money behind this and see where it goes. Um, you'll be lucky if they tweet it a couple times, you know. Um, oh yeah. And so that that is re- like I, at this point, I spend I honestly spend more time on the back end and marketing side of book publishing than I do actually writing the books, you know. Sure. Um, and it, it's a real struggle. So if if you see a writer, especially an indie writer uh, that has a book out, just know that secretly they're screaming at you, please leave a review. <laughs> and sometimes not so secretly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I've told people like all I want for my birthday is you to go leave a review. That's it. Yeah. That's all I want for my birthday. <laughs> That's all I want for my birthday. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it is definitely a struggle, but um, so how's your experience on Vela been? It, it's, I've had a couple authors kind of in my circle that have kind of jumped on it, and they've been having decent results with it. Um, 
for Amazon. I don't I don't feel like Amazon's really pushing it They're that not. much. So really see, um, I've been on Vela since it launched. So that mm-hmm. was April of last year, I want to say, something like yeah. that. Um, when, when, and for those who aren't, who, who don't know, I'll give you the, the, the 30 second crash course on Vela. Vela is Amazon's short fiction service. So it's an episodic, uh, content, meaning when you, when you read Vela's, which are sort of never ending stories, you know, serialized content from an author, you pay for them with these little tokens and you're basically paying for a chapter at a time. The tokens are are fractional pennies. They're very inexpensive, but the idea is that you find an author, you read a chapter. It's really designed to be read maybe on your phone, on a, maybe an iPad. It's, it's designed to be, in fact, for the longest time, they only had the service available for iPhone devices. It took oh, wow. forever for them to get it to Android, and it's still not on the e-ink Kindle, I don't believe. So hmm. the, the idea behind Vela was to sort of capture a the, the same market that's huge over in Asia, the, the, the sort of serialized fiction market that's big in uh, big overseas. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I launched, I put four Vela's out, um, uh, three of which I pulled within the first 60 days. Um, and as it's a funny story, um, I debated pulling the fourth because Vela is a platform that if you don't bring your own fans, you won't mm-hmm. find any. Right. It's not like you said, it's not a well-known platform. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't having a a lot of success. And the fourth story was a a horror story, a horror thriller called The Last Sunrise. It's Mm a it's a gritty, juicy, revenge ish sort of first person perspective. Um, uh, Female main character, uh, Mallory, it's a it's dark. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's a dark sort of uh, really compressed narrative, uh, tight, tight band focus. I mean, you're right behind the eyes for this, mm-hmm. this woman. And it takes place in the, in the middle of the Sunshine State, which, as you can imagine, as a vampire, if you're living in the Sunshine State, you're going to have a really, <laughs> really bad time. Okay? Yeah. And it yeah. is, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's an, um, uh, a, an, uh, an uh, Odyssey-style epic right where this where the 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 character the you know our our heroine just keeps getting thrown into one worse situation after another many of them of her own doing and is trying to um to save or protect uh, a brother and it it takes on a life of its own as she kind of wheels and wiles her way through the middle of the state which like i said at the start of our our conversation is a is a very um, uh, rural and and dark and um, lonely chunk of the state. I mean, this is mm. not glitzy, glitzy, uh, sparkly vampires, right? This isn't <laughs> South Beach, Miami nightclubs. This is yeah. this is you know dark, gritty, uh, bloody, revenge-filled sort of you know stuff. And what? Yeah. What was interesting is that I had written about 12 episodes or so of The Last Sunrise, and I had actually contemplated on pulling it as well and saying, you know what, this just didn't work for me. I gave it a good try. This didn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, a young woman found me on Twitter mm-hmm. and sent me a DM. We became friends, and she said, I am absolutely in love with The Last Sunrise. 
I am dying to see how this story ends. Now, mind you, I don't pre-plan anything. I'm yeah. a I'm a pantser from uh-huh. from the word go. I mean, I I believe in a in a concept called um, frameworks. So mm-hmm. if you're familiar with um, guys like uh, Lester Dent and um, maybe the Save the Cat framework, yeah. uh, essentially the idea being that there are certain mile markers that would exist in, in any uh, pulp story, in any novel, and whatever. And as long as you hit those notes, it doesn't matter what key you're in, as long as you hit those notes. Mm. So I wrote The Last Sunrise using the Lester Dent model, which I sort of redesigned as the, the darkest before the dawn. And it was mm. a four-part model, meaning every four, every four episodes formed a miniature arc, mm. kind of like a TV okay. show. Every four yeah. episodes of a miniature arc. The first episode set the stage. The second episode is when life got bad for Mallory. By the third episode, she tries to do something to make it better and succeeds in making it terribly worse. And by the fourth episode, she has to claw her way out by the skin of her teeth, only to tumble headlong into the next first episode, right? Yeah. So the, so every four of them forms this sort of Lester Dent-like narrative. And if you're listening and you want, you can look up the Lester Dent model. It's all over the internet. The guy wrote it back in the, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you kind of adjust the verbiage a little bit, it's a great way to to write either a short story or a a little four-part serial, you know, design. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, I did all this and I had no idea. I'm like 12 episodes in, Bob, I had no idea where this was going to go. And and so she writes me this message and I thought to myself, would you do it for just one reader? Now, if you're a writer, you know the answer to that question. Yeah. Of course you do it. (laughs) One person tells you they love it. Well, hell yeah. yeah, This. So I wrote the remainder of The Last Sunrise over a um, sort of a, a caffeine-fueled bender of 3,000-word-a-day run for like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many episodes it was. I think it ended in the 50s or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I absolutely loved it. I, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And I, I ended up picking up a few more readers along the way. Mm-hmm. Um Someone at Amazon liked it enough to feature it on the featured stories um, bar on Kindle Bella uh, four times. There you go. Oh, wow. Four times it got featured. Now, I mean, it's not a romance. So, you know, if you get featured near a romance, it's like you've, you've hooked <laughs> bottle rockets to your back end. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're headed to the moon, right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it did fine for, for, what, it, for what it was. And um, it really got me when um, she messaged me after the final episode, because it's, listen, the story is called The Last Sunrise, all right? (laughs) So you have to, without going into details, you have to imagine how this could play out. Uh, Yeah. She she messaged me uh, at the end and said that it it was bittersweet that it ended, but it ended in true horror story fashion. And, um, you know, like I said, for those of you who are getting into or thinking about writing something, that's really, you can't ask for much more than that. You you really Uh, can't. One dedicated reader who saw it all the way through to the end um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, got me to continue to uh, to do the Kindle Vellum. Yeah, I've I've told uh, uh, I I tell people that you got to define success for yourself. You know, success for you is going to look very different for success for someone else. And when you're getting into, uh, especially like indie publishing, you know, if you're thinking you're going to be Stephen King, spoiler, you're not. Um, 
What? So you, yeah, I know, what? right? So you've got to figure <laughs> you've got to figure out what success looks like for you. And I, I recommend people like set smaller goals. And my first goal was I want a fan, like one person that just buys everything that I do. They just love what I do, and like that'll be like that's step one for my I am a success you know roadmap. And right. I'm I'm happy to say I now have two of those. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. No, I, so on, on my book side, I do. I have the same. I'm, I'm right there with you. There's a, a woman over in uh, Europe who is a very, very dear friend of mine who's most likely going to listen to this the minute it comes out. And she has read every single weird Florida story, all 43 mm -hmm. of them and some. So, yeah. Uh, yes, they are the reason we do this. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's one of those I, uh, <laughs> through a weird series, I, my uh, a family member of mine, uh, I didn't realize that I had this guy who just kept commenting on all my stuff, you know, and mm -hmm. like I, I, I'll occasionally, you know, start doing some weird little thing. Like I'll, I'll tell you one, um, I love college football and I'm a big, uh, uh, you know, uh, University of Alabama football fan. But I, I also realize how insane the South views uh, college football. <laughs> and so I decided to start a project called the Cult of Crimson which reimagined uh, Alabama football fandom as basically being a fan of uh, like Cthulhu and dark entities. Ah, and, uh, so Eldritch, Eldritch Horrors on the 100-yard line, right? Or yes. Yard line. Oh, yeah. And so this guy just kept, like, he was all about it. You know, he kept commenting. And I was like, man, how did this guy even find me? You know, like, this is a weird, like, little <laughs> sub thing of mine. And uh, then, like, you know, I started putting out books and he was all about him. I was like, man, where did this guy come from? And it turns out it was like a family member's stepdad who had just my family member shared something I yeah. did one time. This guy saw it, liked, was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And now, like, everything, like, he messaged me today. I'm doing a uh, book launch on, uh, by the time this comes out, the book will been out for some months but uh on tuesday my fourth book is launching and uh he messaged me to ask hey what way can i buy this that you'll get the most money and i was like that just warmed my heart so much yeah, don't you love those people yeah, yeah. and yeah, so then i was like well look yeah i was like well you know i get about the same kindle versus print really after you know the print after amazon takes their cut and publishing costs it, i make like $2.30 off the Kindle version. I make like $2.60 off the print version. It's not a big deal. It's like, well, I'll just buy both just to be on the safe side. I was like, man. God bless you, sir. Yes. <laughs> and so, oh, and, 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 and yeah, and so it was just, and you, that's the thing is what I tell people is you never know where you're going to wind up making a connection like that. So uh, <laughs> I had a, uh, 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 my best friend from college, his, he had a cousin that he always talked about that he had the shotgun approach to dating that he would just fire a hundred pellets out there, uh, and figured that at least one girl would say yes to, to him going on a date, you know? And, uh, I kind of view that with, uh, with book publishing, you know, like this is like you, you throw a hundred 
you know, little ads or, you know, statuses or whatnot out there. And you just hope that one of them is seen by someone who they may not be a fan, but they may have an opportunity for you. You know, like I, you posted on the urban fantasy subreddit, like, Hey, I'm doing this series Uh comment. If you'd like to be featured, I commented. So you did a thing on my book and now you're yeah. here on this podcast, you know? So yeah. it's like, it, it, it's you little things. Know. Yeah. It's little things like that. Um, yeah. I've, uh, I met, uh, a guy at drag, an author at dragon con, uh, and we kind of kept emailing after. And since then, you know, we've started doing events together, you know, it's, it's these little things along the way, you never know what's going to be the thing that pops off for you. So, um, sure. just keep, just keep plugging away. And hopefully, you know, if you're, if you're lucky, things will pop off. Yeah. Luck does play a huge role in it. I, I tell people all the time, it's a very simple secret. Be lucky. Yeah. Do not be unlucky. Very <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, oof. It's, uh, what's the, what the, what's the old cliche phrase? It's hard out there for a pimp. It's, yeah. uh, it, 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 it is indeed. It is indeed. Yes, it so, is. all right. So you talked about, uh, I normally ask like what kind of element of Southern culture do you like to show? And I, I like how you were talking about, like, you like to showcase the weirder side of, of kind of Southern culture, kind of like highlight it and then twist it to make it magical. Um, yeah. I think the big thing with, with all the weird Florida books, especially not so much with the last sunrise, the last sunrise, it was more like a, a deliverancey style, um, you know, uh, sort of dark and mysterious and the real villains maybe weren't the vampires as much in that story. Right. Mm -hmm. It, it got very, um, interesting to follow as you're slowly, you know, sort of unraveling what went on. And I've done that in a couple of other velas when I did the, the apocalyptic, the pearl, uh, mm -hmm. it's the same way where we unravel the story piece by piece, uh, jumping backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards as you're trying to figure out who was really the bad guy and, and who isn't, um, the, the, with the weird Florida books, um, what I tried to do is create new sort of uh, mythological monsters and, and spirits and creatures and things that fit the feel for Florida. So a classic example, um, I wanted to have vampires in my story, but I didn't want them to be traditional vampires mm -hmm. at all. And this was the weird Florida. So I, at one point, um, you know, at, at multiple points in the story, when it's pointed out to the, to the individuals that, you know, you're, they're really a lot like vampires. They will vehemently deny that and say that that's not even real. That's all make-believe, <laughs> right? The, um, the, uh, the rest of it is, the rest of it is all tied up in sort of mosquito, um, uh, mosquito people is how I sort of envision Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, you know, their faces sort of unpeel and these long sort of probing tongues. If you can think of it, it's a little like um, Guillermo del Toro's um, The Strain, right? Where they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're really grotesque um, yeah. in how they, they do these things. But I want, again, I wanted to have a very Florida feel. The other big thing that we do throughout the, the weird Florida books, and you bump into it immediately in, in Dead Set, you start to see not only the concept of new dead, these souls mm -hmm. of the damned that yeah. inhabit uh, that can get into people and cause them to do terrible things, which is a perfect dovetail for the weird Florida man, Florida woman, you know, crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then the rest of it is all around, uh, settles around these um, odd 
objects and things imbued with magical powers. And we find out about, uh, think of it like the, the things you would find in, a, in a, a flea market, right? We have, in the Weird Florida series, we have the five-star toaster. That mm -hmm. if by pulling the arms down on the toaster, it creates this, this unquenchable inferno until the arms pop all the way back up. <laughs> Love um, it. We have lost buttons to hold one in your hand, whisks you off to this, you know, alternate world, these, these alternate places, um, you know, all of these different, these different items. And each one of them has a little bit, you know, it has some, some good and some bad, you know, mm -hmm. Prussian wedding bowls and uh, just lots of strange items. And it, it all comes from growing up. I had a grandfather who was a uh, kind of a hoarder, like kind mm -hmm. of. Uh, yep. I loved him dearly, but he he was depression era, right? So they mm -hmm. believed heavily in things, right? He was he invested in things. So yeah. uh, you know, his garage was full of sewing machines that only needed one part and rollerblade, a bag of rollerblade wheels. Man had never rollerbladed a day in his life. You know, <laughs> had, you know, it was but we take things like that and I use things like that throughout the books. Um, you know, our, our hero, Gene, who's a, a, a magician and father, um, he has other people in his sort of arc and orbit that use these different items. He uses these items uh, from time to time, and they, they exist to sort of continue to sell that, that weirdness narrative of, of Florida, right? If you yeah. come down here, if you know people that live here, they will take you to a flea market. There are more <laughs> stores here than there are, you know, than there are people under the age of 40, right? It's, <laughs> it really is. And what's interesting is everyone, you know, the people that, that shop at them, they value these treasures, you know, these, mm -hmm. these little, you know, I got these horned rimmed glasses that, you know, I, I was able to use them to read. So I think of all the money I saved. Who the hell owned these things? Yeah. And, I mean, you're going to sit, well, oh, that's just, well, but that becomes again, part of the, this, the, the stories that mm -hmm. make up this place. So I love the idea of taking the, the thrift store junk, you know, the flea market um, flotsam and jetsam and giving it, um, you know, magical powers and, and also making it so that normal folk look at it and think nothing of it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that's a, that's a, a really interesting way to showcase this, the strange shine state <laughs> that only someone who's visited here really understands. Yeah, no, I, uh, I actually, uh, a, with my series, uh, a thrift store, uh, that is, uh, based on the, one of the thrift stores in the town where I went to college, um, the Christian mission was its name. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it, it crops up all the time because, mm. uh, my my main character uh, robs it basically you know um people you know they always drop off their stuff around back and he just gets there first takes the good stuff and uh goes on about his day and uh yeah thrift thrift store culture i'm sure every place in america has a little bit of thrift store culture but um i know a disturbing number of people that that is their lives. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. With all our retirees down here, we have a lot of people that are looking for bargains and then a lot of mm -hmm. people who move here and that are trying to unload as many things as they can, right? Yeah. They're trying to, to, to jettison their lives. And of course, you know, it's it's rather morbid, but we've heard the, the phrase before that Florida's God's waiting room. So there are a lot of people that pass on down here whose estates end up in thrift stores. So it's, yeah. it is a 
fun thought exercise to even walk through there and just you know whip together names for these these things and <laughs> you know what oddity they could be uh, they could do uh, and jot it down so yeah I, it's it's a big part of the the weird florida series for sure yeah i, I love it i love it um i and that, that's something uh i read uh i think it's japanese mythology that has this concept that if anything like inanimate objects make it a hundred years they become like enchanted or something like that or they become inhabited by a spirit there's like there's like a concept of that and it kind of plays to that like i just and i've always loved that idea that you know if some something can just last long enough it will become magical and i just uh i my dad i joke my dad was a hoarder he just had 90 acres with which to spread it out on Mm. um and i just think about all this old junk that he had you know that if just stumbling upon it someday and discovering that it had some sort of magical ability because it was just had it was so old i just love that idea so well, and, and I mean, you think about it, you and I are probably not far apart in age. Um, no, we're, we're pretty close. And, yeah, I, I would guess. And I think we grew up with that, you know, with an era of everything is mass produced and everything you're, you, mm-hmm. you buy at the store is, you know, my machine spit it out. And, you know, it, there's a certain, there's a certain sacredness to something someone made by hand. I mean, it's not surprising mm-hmm. that my daughter prefers going to Etsy to buy things than, you know, Amazon. Oh, yeah. I think there's, I think there's a certain je ne sais quoi of having the the item be, um, you know, be handmade or be like you said, old and uh, fabricated, perhaps using skills that don't even exist anymore. I mean, yeah. hell, I had a toaster that I burned the snot out of my fingers on, which is what became the five star toaster. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> the idea was that that thing, I mean, that thing was like 60 year old old when I got it. it yeah. That thing was, was like iron, you know, like heavy casts. Yeah. Yeah. It was a mess, but it worked. And yeah. boy, did it work. So <laughs> I think that's a certain, you know, there's another piece to it is that some of these older things, they were built before everyone figured out that you should just make stuff that people throw away and have to buy a new one in two years. Yeah. Uh, well, so. and some of this kind of that plays on that is, you know, it, it, and it grows more and more every year. I, I think, for example, uh, bladesmithing, um, yeah. because of shows like Forged in Fire that are out there, more and more people are making knives these days and, you know, and they're getting into blacksmithing uh, because of that. And uh, uh, I think it's uh, S.M. Sterling that he wrote uh, the Emberverse books. He has this theory that the first world would actually do a lot better in the event of like societal collapse because so many people in the first world have the free time to invest in hobbies that are useless in modern society, but like blacksmithing or things like that. And so if, if there was a societal collapse, you know, there was an EMP, you know, a sun sunburst that destroyed all electronics that we'd be better positioned because we have so many people that have useless hobbies, um, whereas in the you know in the third world it's much more of a survival culture. They don't have the time and resources to devote to learning pointless hobbies. Um, so yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And like I can I can attest that I know 
like growing up, I didn't know anyone who was into vintage clothes. That was not on anyone's radar, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe someone was playing, playing dress up with their grandmother's clothes, but that was just a fun thing to do. It wasn't like an interest, but like now, like I see it more and more that like, there are people that they're super into vintage clothing. They go to thrift stores all the time, trying to find that, that perfect piece of vintage clothing or, you know, people that are into, uh, uh, like 50 style furniture, you know, that I've seen that really blow up that they're, you know, they try and outfit their entire house in 50 style furniture, the, the mod furniture or whatnot. And it's like, none of that was anywhere on, I think our radars when we were growing up, but now it's very much a thing like that, that desire for nice things that were built to last, you know? Sure. Sure. Now I, I have to admit, I've, I've been, as you were talking, I've been thinking about my odd hobbies and societal collapse. And I've, I've realized <laughs> that years of playing the banjo would probably suit me well in the event of a Mad Maxian style global apocalypse. I, there you go. I might be able to use that to communicate with the natives. Well, you're a, stor- of- you're a storyteller and you have a banjo. So you're basically a bard. So, oh man, That's, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Live, well, live your ultimate well, D&D well, fantasy. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I was, uh, briefly a leather worker. Um, oh, I, go. I, so I got I, make those shoes that would fit us. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, briefly, um, me, it was me and a girlfriend, uh, really got into it pretty heavily. Uh, thanks to nerd culture. You know, we, nice. we went to dragon con and saw all these cool leather masks that were really expensive and we wanted yeah. the masks, but we didn't want to pay mask prices. And we're like, Oh, let's just look into it and see how hard it is to do. So we, Famous last We've, words. Well, yeah. And then we, you know, rather than just buy the masks for, I don't know, $100 each, we then spend like $1,000 buying tools and raw leather and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah, you can't see it over here, but I'm vigorously <laughs> nodding my head because that yeah. makes perfect sense. It, it always it, starts that way. You're like, I bet I could do this for cheaper. And then, you know, <laughs> times the price in, you're going, how did I end up here? What happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. And then and then we split and I just like, you know what, you can keep all this leather crap. I'm I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but you're, I know you're, you're gonna wake up in a cold sweat wondering where your leather punch is. You you're know, like, oh, give it away. Well, you know, in case of you know, in case of societal collapse, uh I'm going to go to her house and be like, look, I want my half of those tools back now. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, um, well, all right. So we kind of touched on it, how you like, you like putting a Southern and Florida Floridian twist on the supernatural, which I love. Uh, and it's something that I kind of try and do myself. Uh, the, the South doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't have a ton of good, uh, monsters and such that aren't cryptids. And, you know, cryptids are kind of their own thing. And it's kind of hard sometimes to work in cryptids in uh, more like fantastical kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. um, cryptids are, I guess, more grounded in reality, I guess you could say, as, as much as uh, uh, as anything. But um, 
so it, it's always neat. And I just really love when people take something that, you know, vampires are not Southern mythology. Uh, I mean, I, unless you count Anne Rice, but, no, um, but mosquitoes are, <laughs> but mosquitoes, you know, and so mm-hmm. it's taking, taking, you know, Eastern European, you know, mythology and putting a Southern twist on that. I just love, I love that. Um, and I love to see, see when that happens. Um, so just wanted to give you kudos there. Oh, well, thanks. No, we do a lot of that. And I, I've done that both in the Tales of Weird Florida and another series that I've been working on called um, Sigil and Sunset. And the idea is, is sort of the same. I, I agree that there's not a ton of traditional monstering that you can do. But what I try to do a lot of, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in uh, titles and in names for things without getting into this sort of Ursula Le Guin um, you know, mm, yeah. Earth kind of stuff. But I love—I—I I, I loved it back when I read The Hobbit as a kid, and you know, there's Bilbo Baggins talking yeah. to Smiley, giving him these—you know, I am the Barrel Rider, the Luck Winner, <laughs> and I—I I love that as a kid. Yeah. I loved it. So a lot of the the spirits, the the you know, the elementally like creatures in my stories have titles like that. Um, the, the most recent story uh, I did under Sigil and Sunset featured um, something I called uh, the Silt Maiden. Now, the Silt Ooh. is that that grayish brown black mud, mm-hmm. right? That's just off the, the you know just just under about eight feet of brown water on the in the canals that are uh, that you know uh, crisscross the southern edge of the state, and. The Silt Maiden was the Lady of the Shallows and mm. the Mistress of Surrendered Hopes. Love and, it. And, oh, yeah. And, okay, so you, you take that. And now, all of a sudden, I, I try to infuse my worlds with lots of this sort of stuff. So that if you're a regular Joe Blow or, or Susie Q and you're wandering around, you're not really aware of all this stuff that's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. These are all things that happen just outside of your your purview, just outside of your your mind's eye. But in these in Sigil and Sunset in, in Weird Florida and stuff I've done like that, um, I try to make the, the the monsters, if you will, you know, sort of the, the rough equivalent of, you know, you don't go uh, your ball gets lost over Mr. Wilson's fence. You don't go get it. Right. You see, yeah. That's that all is his now. Right. And that you all, we always had somebody like that growing up, right? Some house mm-hmm. on the street, you didn't go in the yard. No, you don't go in that person's <laughs> yard. You don't let that dog bark at you, or you don't, you know, you don't play with that guy's trash cans. Or you could tell I got in trouble some as a kid. <laughs> uh, but the concept was the same: is that we try to populate the the this world with a lot of those kinds of things that are maybe a little American gods like in that yeah. they exist. They're there. They're not anywhere no, remotely as powerful as perhaps they once were, but they exist. And if you and if you don't know what you're doing, if you step on their, if you step in their yard, right? If you knock on their door, if you do those kinds of things, you better be prepared for it and and know what to do when that happens. Yeah. And both um, both Jackson Miller from Sigil and Sunset and Gene Law in Tales of Weird Florida are the kind of guy you need to have around who knows about these things and understands, um, you know, what to do. They're, you know, a little MacGyver-esque in their, uh, in their skill sets when it comes to these sorts of things. But it doesn't mean they don't blow it terribly and make, you know, 
of mistakes because it would be terrible fiction if they did. Right. So they have to uh, they have to screw up a lot. But that's that's the kind of stuff I love to do. And I think Florida really lends itself to that because it again, most of the people that live here aren't they're not. I mean, they're certainly not native. Nobody lived here uh, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. And yeah. the people that come here often don't know the, the, what I, you know, like you talked about your Alabama football, that's a ritual in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I know this because I have relatives that went to Auburn. So I'm <laughs> well of War Eagle and Roll Tide and all of the, 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 the hatred that happens between them. Right. Oh yeah. So the, and that's, that's, it's a ritual. You take somebody from, from Michigan um, and they think they know rivals with the Ohio state. They don't have a clue. No. <laughs> they haven't even to experience what this is like. Um, so I think that there are there are things like that that in my stories and I like to use that happen as part of that supernatural that you know the average person is just not gonna know or understand. Yeah. They're not gonna they're not gonna catch it, they're not gonna see the significance of it. It would be the significance of you deciding to wear orange and blue to a family gathering on a certain saturday in late november and all of a sudden you know you might you know a a a a person without specific knowledge might not think anything of it this is a (laughs) lovely orange and blue shirt for those that don't aren't following along that would be Alabama's rival auburn and you're wearing their colors to an event that's most likely full of people wearing crimson and white Oh yeah, so, it to be social faux yeah, pas of the year. It, yeah, it, and social faux pas, but it, it even extends beyond that. So that's what I try to do with with the the supernatural stories that I tell. I try to um, I try very hard to steal from um, from Neil Gaiman and from mm-hmm. um, some of the more whimsical and and downright frightening things that he likes to do. The things that. Um, Guillermo del Toro likes to do and Chuck Hogan mm-hmm. did in uh, The Strain, some of the creepier parts of uh, The Gunslinger and The Dark Tower series. Yeah. I, that's really what I love. And I love to to write and weave into it a, uh, a more uh, realistic uh, hero. If you if you read Gene Law, if you read Weird Florida, some of my other works, my heroes aren't uh, always up, you know, not so upstanding, but they don't always know the right thing to say. Um, they often uh, crack jokes at the worst of times. Um, they try to uh, to make light of a painful situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they do the kinds of things that we would do if yeah. I would like to think we would do if we were you know, dealing with that sort of, uh, of situation. So I, it's a it's a lot of fun. It's uh, something that I've enjoyed doing immensely. I and mean, you don't get up at 4 a.m. and do this if you're not enjoying it. Exactly. Uh, you sacrifice a lot of sleep uh, to uh, to put these words down. But mm-hmm. um, it lets us tell a story and um, to share a, a, you know, the imagination of what I see when I go outside that maybe yeah. other people don't. Yeah. Um, I want to touch back on when you're talking about the names. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is something I'd never really thought about that, about how, you know, you know, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings being so influential on modern fantasy. And uh, my, probably my favorite fantasy series is uh, the black company by Glenn cook. And Mm -hmm. 
it's chock full of those names. Like there, there's a group of 10 wizards called the 10 who were taken and they all have just these over the top, amazing names, like soul catcher, the limper, yeah. Oh, yeah. the hanged man and stuff like that. And, and that was a huge influence on me. I also, uh, I have not ever put any of it out, but I have, uh, uh, some fantasy novels that I'm mm-hmm. will eventually see the light of day. I'm just sitting on them for now. Um, but I, I do the same thing. Like I, the names like that. And I think uh, I'm a huge, uh, you know, Lovecraftian fan. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of what drew me to that is all these over the top glorious names, like the whisperer in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. and Lurker things like at the that. Threshold. Yeah. I just love, yeah. I love all that stuff so much. And I never really kind of tied it back to, you know, the Hobbit and it, but it very much is a thing in the Hobbit. Um, and it just makes me think of how much of that's been lurking in all of fantasy's mind ever since. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, remember, Bilbo uses his lines when he talks to Smaug. He also, mm-hmm. um, when he fights the spiders in Milk- Mirkwood Forest, mm-hmm. he has, um, you know, they, the spiders want to know what it is. And he says, tell yeah. them it's sting. And yeah, I um, know yeah, it, 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 uh, it's really... I mean, hell, even Smaug has his own, you know, the chiefest of all calamities. Yeah. Right? I mean, these are these are great. And I use this stuff. I, I think what it does is it provides a sort of evocative. And that, that's one of the things that, that writing fiction is. It's hard to to write emotion. You really mm. have to have to draw it out like you're like you're coaxing a catfish out of a hole. Right. For those that have never lived in the South, you stick your hand in the hole and you wiggle your fingers yeah. around and it hopes that the catfish will bite your fingers. Yeah. This yes, this is actually something people do. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, look it up. It's called it's called noodling. Oh noodling. Yes. Yeah. So I, really what you're doing as an author, at least to me, is you're noodling for emotion. You're noodling for it. And what you have to do is I have to give you, you know, I can't say and he was sad. That would be terrible. It would absolutely be terrible. What I have to do is have to noodle for it. <laughs> I have to have some, some inner dialogue where there's some questions and some, some debate and some argument and some concern. And then I have to have him try to do something perhaps that, that a, a guilty feeling person would do. I mean, you have to noodle for that emotion. And I think using terms and using descriptions like that, using titles like that, noodles it 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 wiggles the fingers in your brain right yeah. i mean that paints a really nifty picture doesn't it that i'm sticking <laughs> my fingers in your brain yeah. and wiggling them but but yeah. it's true i mean it, it it wiggles those fingers in your brain and it makes you fill in the rest one of the mm-hmm. things I, i've done from time to time is i do some like writing assistance with folks that are getting started right and i've been doing this for a number of years now and so we work on you know, I've helped them out with different things over the years. And one of the big things I love to do is for me, it's not for everyone, but for me, less is more. Um, You don't have to give me all the deep gritty detail of who moved where and when don't, you don't have to set the stage for me. Let, let my mind fill in the different pieces, you know, let me imagine up the the gaps and, and fill them in with color. I mean, it, I think that to me, that works the best. Uh, It's not for everyone. Well, I think it works exceptionally well in horror. Um, yes. This is something I, because that's where I really started was I was more of a traditional horror author mm-hmm. when I, before kind of shifting to urban fantasy. And uh, the thing about it is, is no matter how good of a writer you are, you 
at the end of the day, you will never be better than somebody's imagination. And if you sit there and spell out every aspect of the creature of whatever horror, whatever mystery there is, um, it's never going to live up to the expectations of the writer. But if you, if you give hints and let the reader fill in the gaps, they will fill in a better picture for themselves than what you would write. And they will love it more for it. Oh yeah. And they'll love you for it. And they'll say weird things to you. Like I loved how you described the monster and you'll sit there and go, <laughs> I never described. It. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. I'm glad you did yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I agree and, completely. And, uh, and another, uh, this is uh, a more, it's not really common in necessarily the genres that we're writing, but like in uh, it's more common in uh, some of like romance and things like that. But like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe it, you know, uh, I can't remember if it was Twilight or Fifty Shades, for, but one of them, like the author never really describes what uh, the our leading lady looks like, you know, yeah. just, just in general. But they mm-hmm. did that so that the readers would self-insert, you know, by leaving yeah. enough gaps, they would, the, the readers would put themselves into the story. And th- that's why, that's part partly why those were such successes is because Mm -hmm. people could self-insert and people do love to be able to do that kind of thing. Um, Oh yeah. And now it it worked for those genres that doesn't necessarily work in, uh, in others. You know, if you write a, uh, an epic fantasy novel and never describe your main character, your reviews will reflect that. Uh, yeah well expectations right it's all about expectations yeah it's you know you're you if your readers like um you know tomato ice cream you damn well better give them tomato ice (laughs) you can put put some different kinds of sprinkles on there but you best be serving up heaping bowls of tomato ice cream if that's what they want yeah yeah um it's and that's the thing is just going to come with time you know the more you do this the more you learn about your marketing the more you as you sell books, there are certain things, there are certain rules you cannot break and there are certain right. rules that you, you can, you know, but until you're experienced, you need to be hitting all the beats that your readers expect and not being like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of hair off this way that if that's the story you want to tell, tell it, but then don't be upset if you market your book as you know, young adult urban fantasy, but you don't hit half the notes that people are expecting and they get into it and they realize it's really more of a, a horror novel, you know, mm-hmm. or the, yeah. or vice versa, you, you know, your readers are going to be upset by that. So it's a, it's, it's a tricky line, but um, just, if you'll stick, stick to the main beats, you'll be okay and learn what you're sure. doing and then break all the rules. <laughs> right. And, and seeing as it's, it's a, it's a multi, you know, billion dollar hobby that we make, you know, we have to hire accountants and everything to cover all of our immense success. It makes perfect yeah. sense. To, 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 no, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> together for warmth, Bob and I, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, but you're right. You, you do, you want to hit the right tropes. And I think one of the other things I, I have this discussion with people all the time is that I could write anything I want. The goal is to write something is to find the magical space where those two circles intersect of Mm -hmm. things I like to write and things other people like to read. If I can find that little fingernail sliver where those two circles intersect and, you know, find those people, then, uh, then I'm golden. But, um, 
I go back to my first axiom, be lucky, do not be lucky. <laughs> yeah. No, that was something I was uh, did an interview with someone else on here and we we were talking about it. And um, oh my God, I just totally blanked. My, my mind reset itself. Um, oh God, I hate when that happens. All right, so we're going to skip over that uh, uh, since I can't remember where the end of that sentence was. Um, <laughs> I sometimes is, start speaking and I don't yeah. even know where the sentence will end. Yeah, no, this is the quality content you uh, you, you get on, on Southern Fried Fantasy. Um, so... Oh. Uh, all right. So the first half of the podcast, I kind of gear it more towards the readers and then the back sure. half kind of gear it more towards the writers. So uh, which we've, you know, we, we touch on both all throughout, but sure. uh, you've talked about it. You're more of a pantser um, mm -hmm. and that you write, uh, you know, 3000 words a day, pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. Uh uh, any other parts of your process? Uh, one thing I am very jealous. Uh, I've seen I've seen what you write on, and I've looked at those over the years, and have I keep going back and forth on it. Like I think I would be far more productive on them. You will, you will. But I it. yeah, but it's the they're not cheap. Um, they're not, is the no, problem? They're not. And I but um, if you uh, if you if you if you're interested in purchasing one and you come find me there's a decent chance i can get you a little bit of a percentage off i have okay. a uh, i have a a good relationship with the folks there i've been you know i'm in their million word club yeah. um it, the devices are called free rights uh, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of free uh, free marketing exposure um, the devices are called free rights um, they are distraction free um, uh, writing devices and that's a that's a big part of my process. Uh, for those that don't really understand what I'm talking about, I got I cut my teeth on word processors. Yeah, I know those <laughs> things, right? So these are this, these things are like little typewriters that uh, have little LCD screens, the old word processors. And what they didn't have was Twitter or Reddit mm. or Reddit or Reddit or any of those <laughs> other things that would waste time, right? Um, so the magic behind using these word processor devices is that when I sit down to start writing, I just go. And there's more to it, though, than that. And you know, the lack of distractions, one. But two, they're really hard to edit on. There's no arrow keys. So there's no, I wrote that paragraph, and I want to change the paragraph before it. Maybe I have a better idea for that one. No. No, you can't <laughs> do that. This is more like a typewriter. You just need to keep writing forward. It takes, I'd say it took me about six months of writing exclusively on a distraction-free device, a word processor like a free write, before it changed gears. And all of a sudden, my, my writing, my, my performance uh, jumped. Well, I would say my performance jumped earlier than that, but really six months is when I got real comfortable with it. Um, I routinely now can produce 1,500 words in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so 90 minutes is, um, is 3000 words. And that's without an outline. That's not sitting down and saying, okay, what has to happen next? Let me check my, my beat sheet <laughs> here. Let me look at my, no, I'm, I've been doing these, uh, these frameworks for so many years that I based on the number of the episode or the, you know, the, the number in the four part sequence, I know exactly what beats would have to happen. So I just write, 
But the magic behind these devices is that there are no other distractions. When you're there and when you're working on it, there's no, let me check my email. Let me look up the name of that. Is that called a this or is it called a that? <laughs> they don't, hmm. And then you end up finding that an hour later, you've researched, you know, metro uh, times in uh, <laughs> upstate New York or something. And, you know, you yeah. found yourself in some weird rabbit hole of the internet and, you know, you've burned half your writing time. So no, I'm a huge proponent of those devices. Like I said, I mean, I've, I've written a million words on them. Yeah. It, and, um, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, that's something that I, uh, I extol the virtues of a lot on here is, uh, you know, getting a fixed kind of, if, if you're the kind of person that struggles with writing, if you will always go to the same spot to write, if you'll always play the same music, you'll always have the same scent in the air. You, you know, the first few times you do that, it's not going to help. But over time, as your brain comes to associate, oh, I'm sitting here, I'm hearing this, I smell this, I'm doing this your brain will naturally slip into creative mode. And I can, I just have to think that that would be doubled with this. Cause it's like, Oh, well, cause for me, you know, I use my laptop to write on, but I also mm -hmm. use my laptop to game on. I also use it to do everything on fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it is what I use to write, but it's also what I use to do everything else. And I just have to think that if I had a device where if I am on this device, I am writing, it would just amplify that kind of training your brain to slip into creative mode aspect. And it, it's true. It's hundred percent true. In fact, um, when I, I have both of the devices, I have their, their one that looks more like a, a typewriter. And then mm -hmm. I backed, uh, when it came out their traveler device, uh, did their Kickstarter or, or whatever it was called. I don't know if it was mm -hmm. Kickstarter, but the, the portable, the super portable traveler device, and uh, it's exactly the same way. When I take the traveler device and, and um, in the, uh, the 72 hours of winter, we get down here. I go sit outside <laughs> and um, I've got that device in my hand. I mean, it's, a, it's an e-ink screen with a battery life measured in weeks. So, mm. you know, you, you pop it open. You know, I write. I write for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, 1,500, 3,000 words to do whatever I want to do. And then it synchronizes to their service and then into my Dropbox. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'll pull it out. And the other big thing, and this is something I've been talking to them about a lot lately, is I write in what's called Markdown. Are you familiar with Markdown, Bob? No. Okay, so Markdown is, is a really, really simple text tagging um, uh, syntax. So for a writer, you know, writing, you know, store fiction, um, the most I tend to do is italics, maybe the occasional bold, right? Yeah. But that's about it. Well, the mm -hmm. problem was when I was originally writing on the, these word processors is there was no way to, to flag something as italic or bold. Mm -hmm. So I'd have to port it into something like Scrivener and then go back and figure out which lines I meant to italicize and which lines I meant to bold. And sometimes I would like put a little I in front of it or something to try to remind myself. It was a pain mm -hmm. in the butt. Yeah. But if you write in Markdown, very simply put, if I put a single uh, pound sign for normally aged people that would mm. be the hashtag yeah. in front of the line it becomes the chapter header right the yeah. i like to name my chapters i i've never been a fan of chapter one chapter two i i have same. names for all my chapters very so much then, same um again it goes back to that evocative language right i mm -hmm. like to insert dad joke style puns in there and all sorts of stuff but 
when I have inner, inner monologue, I have uh, it italicized. If you put an underscore in front and behind whatever it is you want to italicize in Markdown, it will automatically be turned into italics. And again, it's really, really simple stuff. So I can type this on any regular word processor. Mm -hmm. The first line has a, a hashtag or a pound sign at the front of it. Anytime I'm doing internal monologue, I put underscores before and after. Yeah. The magic here is that when I'm done and I import this into whether it's Ulysses, if I'm doing a serial or Scrivener, if I'm doing uh, novels, novellas, and short stories, it automatically modifies all of that into italics and chapter headings and mm. all that stuff. Yeah. I don't have to do anything. So again, anytime you're taking one less step, you're less chance of mistake, error, yeah. you know, typographical error, et cetera. So the, the, what, what I'm able to do when I'm writing on a word processor is draft, import into an, uh, an editing system that will automatically have all of the, the formatting applied. So my italics and my chapter titles and any bold or whatever, do it, all of that's instantly done. Mm -hmm. Then I can go from there into something like a pro writing aid to clean up my inevitable uh, spelling and grammatical errors. Right. And then from there into Google Drive so that my editor can uh, mercilessly tear it to shreds. And <laughs> yeah. then I can pull it back out of there and apply those changes into Scrivener or Ulysses, et cetera, and I'm ready to go. I have completed content. Mm. Um, and it saves a lot of you know clicks and highlights and stuff like that, which you know as well as I do. Even cutting and pasting is a recipe for disaster at least once. Yes. You will screw something up at least mm -hmm. once cutting and pasting. So those devices have been really, I could not have become the distraction-free writer I am today without them. Now, yeah. I, I mean, I can, I can open up an iPad and, and pull up IA Writer or Ulysses and, and crank 1,500, 3,000 words and not be distracted because I'm, I mean, I've been doing it for so many years. I'm, I'm trained. Mm -hmm. my, my head is mentally trained to do this now yeah. but um as far as as having dedicated hardware that like you said it evokes that feeling of i am a writer when i'm using this yeah. and it it changes that mindset it's it's worth it yeah they're not cheap but i gotta tell you i was i didn't expect it to be as powerful as it as it was but i there's no way I would have been able to produce the kind of volume that I produce or would be anywhere near as diligent um, a, a, a drafter as yeah. I am without it. No way. Yeah, no, I love that. I, uh, my only real concern is um, I've, I've always uh, pretty early on, I decided I wanted to track my word count. And so I, mm -hmm. you know, I love spreadsheets. I have a, just a, sure. a real love. Like I, I'll, at the drop of a hat, I'll make a spreadsheet for anything. And so I've been tracking my, my writing from, you know, the beginning of my career. And sure. uh, last time I went and did a big overhaul and update, I was sitting at like 1.3 million. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's my only, you know, it's like, well, damn, I've already written a million words. I want to be part of the million word club. <laughs> <laughs> damn. It took a long time to get there. <laughs> it does. I, I did mine during the pandemic. I made mm -hmm. that my solemn goal during the pandemic was, was once we went into the first lockdown, I decided I was going to write a million words. And then yeah. it took about 18 months, um, you know, pandemic kind of ate mm -hmm. a little time. Um, but it took 18 months and uh, there's 
you know, they give you the metrics as you go. So, I mean, every day I could open up Postbox and see how many words I, I typed that day, you know, as yeah. I, as I rolled my way through. But um, I did, you know, right now, as it stands today, I could put out content on either Kindle Vella. I could put out content on Kindle between now and 2025 with an episode happening every single business day without picking up a pen. Yeah. I wouldn't have to type another word. And yeah. I still have stuff left over for the, you know, at least a half a year afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll, I'll say this. That's the power of distraction-free, baby. Yeah. I'll say this. They, for, you know, there weren't a lot of upsides to, uh, you know, the quarantine. But no. I do know a number of people that took that time to really kind of take the plunge on a lot of creative things. Like, so, like for me, for example, like I had been writing for years. Um, but it was only during, you know, it, it was kind of a twofold thing. One, I got tired of paying graphic designers to do stuff for me. <laughs> um, I have a million little projects that I just need a little image for real quick. And I was like, I got tired of having to pay people to do it. It's like, it can't be that hard to make just a basic image, you know? Right. Um, yes. Something elaborate. Sure. I'll still need to pay someone for, for at least this basic stuff, you know? And so I taught myself, uh, uh affinity was what i ended up going with because yeah. affinity oh, they just affinity every day yeah no they during quarantine they put all their stuff half off i was like all right well uh, here here's your sign so I, I bought the suite and you know it was off to the races and then uh around that time i was like you know what i've been i've been writing stuff for 10 years now it's time to get it out you know it's time to start really putting this stuff out there and so i had the first three books pretty much totally written before mm-hmm. uh and the the following three books all half written before i ever put the first book you know into print and um so i had like a nice backlog and so i was able to kind of hit the ground running to to a degree right. yeah and it, it makes a difference it does oh, it makes sure. a difference um when you're trying to because i know just for me for example um you know the first book uh it sold okay you know um it it, it did fine, I guess. Um, b- b- very low bar. But then, you know, the second book came out. Um, it sold a little better, you know. And then when the third book came out, uh, I was able to run some like promo deals and I had kind of established my network a little bit that um, when, I, when I put the third book out, uh, I, because I, I gave away like 600 copies of the first book in like two days. I sold like, uh, 200 copies of the of book two, you know, sold like mm-hmm. 100 copies of book three. Like, uh, so, like for me, these were like gangbuster numbers, you know, and so I it builds on itself. Um, and so, but it is one of those, you know, if if book one to come out and I had to live with those numbers for a year or two before the next book came out, I don't know, uh, how I would have really felt about that, but knowing that, okay, hey, you know. Two, two, three months later, the next book came out. Oh, hey, this one did better. And then, oh, you know, two or three months later, the next book came out and it did a lot better. You know, that the success is building on themselves within a short enough amount of time kind of gave me the the impetus to kind of keep going, you know. So it's uh right. Now now imagine you launched your first book and then the pandemic hit. Because oh, that's what happened to me. Yeah. I launched I wrote all five books of the Tales of Weird Florida and launched the first book not 60 days before the pandemic hit. Yeah. And then 
um, books two, three, four, and five came out during 2020, during the pandemic year. Yeah. So there was really, you could do, you could almost set your hair on fire and run up and down the street and not get any attention. I mean, yeah. that, that's really, I mean, the pandemic was great for going into your shell and doing things creatively, but mm-hmm. trying to get a, a, a new story out and in front of people, um, yeah. it was pretty terrible. Uh, well, I mean, it was oh, I, I have no doubt. Terrible. Yeah. Well, and I find that you, to to really make connections, the when you're unknown, um, you really got to get face to face with them. You know, like oh, going sure. to con- going to convention, setting up. You know, if your library is doing a, an author event, getting out to that, like that. You know you've got people's undivided attention for at least a sentence or two. Uh, and if you can hook them, you know, uh, you, you, you may not make a sale at, at that moment, but you know, the odds are a lot better of you making a sale than, you know, just buying Facebook or, you know, Facebook ads or Amazon ads or anything like that. Um, yep. so yeah, having launching a book right when no one is allowed to get face to face is, uh, not, it not goes good back luck. to my original statement, which was yeah. lucky. Do not be unlucky. Unlucky, yeah. So if you're if you're looking at 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 my progression, that's the point where you go, oh, that was the unlucky point, huh? Yeah. So yeah, yeah no that that was definitely a, a real struggle, uh, it, without question. Um, it was difficult to get things in front of people. It was difficult to, um, you know, like I said, it was it was a time when you know if I could have sponsored a cdc broadcast maybe that would have helped but (laughs) barring that um we weren't you know really paying attention to anything like that so it was it was definitely a struggle and i think as any author who's who's put things on amazon would admit there's there are more especially in urban fantasy i mean you you close your eyes and open them tomorrow and there's a half a million more books on there i mean it's not quite that bad i think the last i saw from kalytics was something like 80 new titles a month Mm-hmm. something i i, I want to say that's right maybe it's more maybe it's less but um that's a, an unbelievable number of um of competitors yeah it's one of i think the biggest um you know, the biggest uh, genres in that you know in that space mm-hmm. that, uh, fantasy space now of course different ones are picking up now i think i read that epic fantasy thanks to things like the the wheel of time and the, yeah um, you know, some recent Amazon's rings of power that I will try hard to avoid. Um, <laughs> those things are, um, are, are getting people interested in, um, in epic fantasy. So maybe a little less um, sort of uh, running of the bulls effect in yeah. uh, urban fantasy. But no, it's, it's definitely very difficult. Um, if you're able to get traction at all, um, that's, uh, that says a lot. I mean, that, yeah. that definitely it, says a lot. It's very, and it talked about it. It is so hard to get noticed um, in urban fantasy because you're right. There is so much of it coming out. Um, and uh, I'll say this, like, I, I really enjoy your covers. Um, Thank you. And your covers, they use a slightly different color palette than everyone else mm-hmm. is using. Um, mm-hmm. They don't feature a uh, a woman in very tight clothing looking over her shoulder you know right oh yeah i don't have the over the shoulder yeah 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 so 
yours to me stand out. And like, so yeah, but you're you covered to stand out. Don't stand out. You <laughs> be the same, but different, but the yeah. same, but different. Well, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. Yours are same, but different. Yours are, you know, slightly different color palette, but you can look at that and you can pretty well tell that it is, uh, it still fits it, the space. Yeah. It, it does. Mine, mine do not. Um, but uh, my books, while being urban fantasy, are a little more horror tinged, mm-hmm. I think, than a lot of urban fantasy. And also, um, when when I'm whenever I'm selling to people in person, you know, they walk up and like, oh, oh what do you write? Like, well, I write about a, a a redneck wizard with a crippling meth addiction, and uh, half the people immediately just bounce right off. They have zero interest. Like, okay, cool, awesome, great. Back away slowly, um, yeah. and then the other half are like, oh my god, tell me more. Um, and so I my covers are very different looking, um, and it's worked okay for me. Um, but I know there is, I know a lot of people have looked over my books because I don't quite fit the mold. Um, but this is one of those deals where I just felt like I had to break the rules because I just like this style of cover so much. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, I had to make the calls like, look, I want this to be a book that I want on my shelf. So um, I, I went that way, but Right. You were just imagining that when Oprah called and she asked you, you're like, <laughs> I did it my way, Oprah. And I think that's what made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I feel like I'm shortlisted for the Oprah book club. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. When you're on there, I'll have you bring one of mine just to be like, yeah, oh, I was dreaming it. Just hold it under your, under your arm. Right. Oh, that's no doubt. I've, I got you. I got you. Thanks. Um, Thanks. Good. Good. All right. So uh, talking about the distraction-free writing, um, sure. because I don't like money, I have a master's in music industry. So I'm nice. always curious to know uh, when you write, uh, mm-hmm. do you listen to anything? Uh, do you keep it, if you're going for the distraction-free, do you just try and keep it as quiet as possible? Or is there music? What What's kind of going on sonically as you write? Um, well, it depends on what I'm writing. So um, there was a, a time when I wrote a, um, a sort of a dark, um, rather I know, cyberpunk adjacent. So I was listening to a lot of um, ambient music. Mm-hmm. Um, when I write, uh, when I wrote The Last Sunrise, I did a lot of, of folk music, a lot of modern folk music. Mm, um, speaking my language. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of alternate it up. I'm not great with individual, you know, I'll listen to like stuff like Steve Canyon Rangers and Steve Martin. And Mm -hmm. um, yes, the comedian does do music for those listening. Um, (laughs) He's a hell of a banjo player. Uh, But beyond that, um, I tend to pick uh, stations that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's a Spotify or an Amazon music or something, pick a station and just let that roll over. Um, I tend to stay away from too many vocals. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I've got too many, especially music that has any sort of, I want to say, like a ballad uh, language to it, you know, Mm -hmm. any kind of, uh, you know, because if there's way too much of somebody else telling me poetry, then I'm going to start writing poetic. And, <laughs> you know, I, when I write the, the the Flower Eater, then that's the, you know, I, I have a, a Weird West series, uh, The Flower Eater or Fistful of Lies. And it's all Love very, it. very deep green kind of poetic um, language. And um, 
then, you know, maybe I want something like that. But for the most part, I try to keep the vocals to a minimum. I really want a lot of, um, of classical or ambient or, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the story, some modern folk, uh, just to keep me in the zone. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was gifted a, uh, set of uh, noise canceling headphones from mm. my wife and daughter about uh, three, four years ago. And they are after my children and my dog, they're probably my most treasured <laughs> possession. Yeah. Um, you know, when, to be able to put those on and, and make the TV and the, the, you know, discord that my daughter's on with 1600 of her closest friends to make that all vanish <laughs> yeah. is, is a little bit of modern magic. I mean, yeah. it, it really is. It's a little bit of modern magic. So love it. Love it. Yeah. I so keep them on a, I have a skull that sits on my desk, a mm-hmm. memo mem- memory that reminds me that we are, we are all going to die. And that mm-hmm. skull holds my noise canceling headphones. So Perfect. it is, uh, yeah, I figured that fits the motif, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. Um, so, uh, I noticed doing my research on you, you are a, a bit of a, uh, I don't know if you play D and D specifically, but that you are a, a role player. It looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went way back. Um, you know, I started with D and D back in the, the first edition days. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started back in the early eighties uh, with, mm-hmm. um, with first edition, uh, AD and I, I kind of missed the box set world. I didn't quite, mm-hmm. I wasn't quite old enough yet to really have dug into that, but I totally got into 1E and then 2E, of course, in, in 89. Um, yeah. That was a big part of my uh, of my life. And then like everybody else in the 90s, I became really goth with my role-playing game, and I was I was a massive fan of Mage. Yeah, um, okay, I yeah. I skipped over Vampire, but Mage was... Mage infected most of my supernatural interests when it comes to hmm. urban fantasy. I loved the idea of, of paradox and magic. The idea that mm-hmm. as the game was played, you could do more and more vulgar displays of magic. But if some mundane individual saw it and and you know, recognized it for what it was, that their their uh, inability to conceive and to understand it would create these sort of paradoxical backlash that would uh, impair your characters. And I, from a, from either a, a GM or a player standpoint, that is good hokum. That is yeah. seriously premium juju because you can yeah. use that. And I mean, I, I've, I've loved that concept. So yeah, I got into the, to the white wolf stuff in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the nineties. And then I took a long long period of time off. Um, you know, I had, I got married, I had a child, a dog and, you know, life and responsibilities and all those things. And then right. the, uh, the, the onus to go back to writing, um, once that came along with it, came a desire to kind of, you know, open up the pull up, up the, that rug a little bit, right. <laughs> you know, check, check the, the trap door for mimics and yeah. decide whether or not, you know, see what, what it looked like. Um, mm-hmm. it's sad. The, the sad part is that one of my best role-playing friends, um, from the nineties, uh, died tragically of, a mm. uh, aneurysm um mm. at least that's what i think it was uh when he was turned 39 day before his 40th birthday Oof. um the, like or the right on his 39th or something like that it was it was unpleasant and i heard yeah. about it through the grapevine uh with someone i always thought i'd be able to play with again and our birthdays were only a few days apart so after a little bit of existential dread wondering if i too was not going to see my birthday um mm. once i came out the other side i i decided to go and 
buy the fifth edition books, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's really funny for those of us who grew up during the satanic panic, right? <laughs> again, for those playing at home and who haven't watched their Stranger Things, that shit was real. People were absolutely convinced that we were summoning the devil by rolling <laughs> dice in, you know, what for you would have been a basement, but for me it was on my back porch. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a, a mother who often told other mothers that, you know, there was no sacrificial chickens and that, you know, <laughs> fine, that it's just a bunch of really nerdy boys um, yeah. goofing off on the porch. But bottom line, um, that the stigmas of that still sort of hung around. It was it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be to go buy those books. I couldn't buy them in person. I mean, you'd have thought I was buying like the twin tuple size hustler <laughs> yeah. now with extra boobs or something. Right. It, yeah. It was, right. It, it was like, you know, you're like all kind of twitchy. Right. So it really, <laughs> I mean, I ended up buying them on, uh, on Amazon and I didn't even open the box until my wife and daughter went to bed. I mean, again, like I'm, like I'm, I'm looking at, you know, like I'm, I'm doing some cocaine or something. It always yeah. just seems strange to me. I made it out to be such a big deal, but, um, I ended up staying up way too late reading those books. Um, the game wasn't exactly like I remembered it. Uh, you know, fifth edition is a lot different than oh, the yeah. stuff that I grew up with. It, it felt more superpowers than anything else, but bottom line, right before the pandemic, I got invited to go play in a game in person. Um, mm -hmm. sadly, again, be lucky. Don't be unlucky. The right. pandemic killed that store and, um, that whole group disbanded and they're gone. Mm. But, um, it was a little surreal, right? I was the, the oldest guy there by, oh, a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot. And, um, you know, it was okay, but at the same time, right. It was not okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not that old, but my, my beard is completely gray, just about. And yeah. I, I, um, I, I felt like I was everybody's like old man or like their, their like creepy old uncle or something. It was very, very strange. Now, since yeah. that time, um, my daughter introduced me to, uh, to discord and mm -hmm. I've played in uh, a very different game, uh, for the last few weeks called a uh, monster of the week. Yeah. Um, I know monster of the yeah. week. Oh man, this is is just this is like urban fantasy right to the veins right you're yeah. just you're mainlining it uh monster of the week ton of fun playing these these one shot games and mm -hmm. uh the the young lady who's the keeper she um she's real good at letting me do the descriptions when i do you know my my weird character does weirdness yeah. um, she's good <laughs> at letting me tell that story to tell that weirdness and it's and it's a lot of fun uh i discovered yeah. a a website called start playing games, right? Where you, mm -hmm. I guess you go and you pay to, to play, uh, in D and D I've, I've already, I mean, well, any RPGs, I've already told my wife that when I retire, that's what I'll do professionally. Yeah. I'll just be a professional uh, GM, you know, love it. Call love me, it. uh, dungeon master Marty. And I'll just yeah. do one of the, my, my dark tales. Um, no, but I've yeah. recently I've, I've become enamored with, um, with indie games. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much you're familiar with, uh, with the exalted funeral, uh, yes, very. A, I saw. I saw you have more cord. Terrible. It, it's a terrible name. Oh, I am loving Mork. All right, so so you you're really digging into some some secret squirrel stuff here, but I'll share it anyway. Yeah. Um, Mork uh, is. Um, I am a huge fan of Mork. Right. For those who mm -hmm. not don't know, Mork Borg. Is... Hello. Hello. Marty?
تمام؟ All right, there you go. All right, so Morkborg, for those of you, uh, you know, listening and not familiar, is sort of a death metal meets Slayer post-apocalyptic fantasy RPG, right? It's gritty, yeah. it's mm -hmm. dark, it's, it's simple rules. They're very old school style rules. You know, there's, you know, yeah. D20 kind of rolls, lots of simple stuff, but it's bleak and it's dark and it's cool. I mean, it's just, it's really well thought out. Oh, it's so fantastic. I, it, it really is. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's like all of these indie games that, that I've discovered. But the thing I like about Mork is that, and it's, I guess it's pronounced Merk, Merkborg, but I'm not Swedish, so I blow it right. constantly call it Mork. Same. So I'm, Same. I apologize to all who, have, who are calling it Merk, because that's what I should be calling it. Uh, I'll probably screw it up three more times now that I've thought about it. But bottom line, they have a wonderful um, uh, license uh, agreement, you know, wonderful um, sort of, you can use our rules, you can do things compatible with this, you can take this as a basis and sort of build your own thing. So mm -hmm. I write a series of weird of West stories called, and I'm right now I'm, I go back and forth between the flower eater and um, the fistful of lies. And it's very much as if the Mississippi Delta is all there is, right? So it's mm. it's a lot of that dark swampland, the green. There's alligators spelled A W L E Y. <laughs> There's the flower eaters are the sort of these these painted face women that that you know can grant you peace by taking you to the edge of life and death. And it's a you know living weapons, swindlers, church talkers. Um, black Bettys and yellow biters and the flower, the Lazarus flowers, the daffle. I mean, it's it's a very evocative series, and I, I love it. And I don't share. Oh, it it, it it sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, but the, the the struggle, and I appreciate that. The struggle with it is, it's best told in these little these little like Conan length six thousand word shorts, mm -hmm. and it it gives you just enough to feel the dark of the green. But then, but but it's it's just not built for a big novel, right? Right. So I, I struggled with how what I could do with that, and what I discovered in in Merck or Merck was that the rule set and how I wanted to do this story sort of dovetailed, and mm. I started taking the world of the Flower Eater, the Fistful of Lies, the Pocket of Truth, the you know the living uh, six shooters, the the evil spirits, the the lady of, you know, what is it? The lady of bones, the, the Sally whipsnatch, the, you know, all of this stuff. Right. Yeah. And I wired it in to essentially the Merck rule set and started turning it into, you know, my own sort of weird West Nueva Delta royalty kind of aristocracy game. And yeah, um, yeah I'm kind of addicted to it right now. Yeah. And I'm, I write the 6,000 word shorts and they, like I said, they have swindlers and rock sluggers and church talkers and red tongues and, you know, all of these things that don't make any sense to you when I say them, but boy, they're very evocative. They are. Um, and the idea is that, that all of that world now gets sort of wrapped into this, this game. Cause I, mean, I love the weird West, but I always felt like it, it missed out on things, you know, always being in that sort of a desert setting. Mm -hmm. I wanted to I wanted to inject it into the to the green. If you if you watch stuff like uh, my wife loves to watch the Naked and Afraid, right? Mm -hmm. and they have these they have these contestants 
in the Amazon. And I'm sorry, that is the green hell. Yeah. That is 100% the green hell. If you listen to the old historical, you know, like the Percy Fawcett stories and stuff, that place is terrifying. Yeah. And if you take that, and I, what my goal was to sort of take that concept of the green hell and of the, the, the stinging bugs and the, the weird dark spirits and the, the way your mind works in that place and to try to, to mesh it up against sort of a, uh, instead of an opium, sort of this daffle, this, this flower that, that mm -hmm. if you, you know, certain people ate the buds, they had power, but if other people ate, if those same people ate the open flower, it would kill them. You know, it was a very, it, it made for a very evocative concept. And I, you know, it's yeah. like all things when you pants, you just sort of go and yeah. it's just coming and coming. So but I, the, the challenge has been, I've, I've been sitting on this thing for almost a year and I just can't figure out what the heck to do with it. Cause there is no market for short stories, right? I mean, I could put, right. I could put a thousand short stories on Amazon. I could be the Amazon short story king and I would make one fruit loop, you know, fruit roll off a month, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, no, and no one would find the stories. I don't even have to make that much money. No one would find them, right? Mm -hmm. So I started going down this path and the hope, the hope is that once I've completed the, the book and injected it with bits and pieces of these different stories and the, the art that God bless artificial intelligence for helping me generate, mm -hmm. um, yeah. that I can, I can produce something that might one day sit on a shelf at Exalted funeral that might yeah you know embrace the 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 Merck board world and you know concept and uh and take it to no, the I, next step so no i i definitely think that uh um because i've seen you know because if they do have an open license you know i've right. seen people doing kickstarters for hey you know i i saw one not long ago i almost backed it almost backed it and then i've i got a little crazy on on the Kickstarter. So I've, I'm making myself dial it back a little bit until some of these actually start rolling in. Um, but mm -hmm. there was one that someone was basically like, it's Morkborg, but in a swamp. Um, I can't remember. I, I, I think they called it like uh swamp Borg or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was to do like, it was just a resource book, you know, mm -hmm. bunch of, bunch of, you know, roll you know to see roll tables, random table kind of stuff yeah a bunch of random tables you know with the same kind of art style that very mm -hmm. evocative borg, borg art style um and uh, it, it definitely it did well um and so there's a lot of love for that license um that game and i i definitely think that you could you could very easily now do do you want to go through the trouble of a kickstarter that's on you but uh i, I don't I, have I, any friends bob that's the <laughs> problem i think with a kickstarter you have to have friends and seeing as i can count my friends on one hand and still have well fingers so out. well so here's the thing um the indie the indie game world is just really good and really supportive and so what uh i i actually design a lot of games and now i do uh just one sheet rpgs um those are really out, fun those yeah really, i just really fun. i i've made like 40 of them at this point i think nice. um and i'm eventually going to make them into game books you know mm -hmm. uh but it, that's that's like the forever project that's going on in the background kind of deal right. um, yeah, it's like repainting the garage i'm gonna do yeah. that i'm totally gonna do that yeah, yeah. But you know, there there's places out there like itch.io. Yeah. Um, I have all I have all my one sheets on 
there and I have them on drive through RPG, you know, mm -hmm. for just like, right. you know, pennies basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, they make me 20, like on a good month at this point, I, I get like 20, 25 bucks a month off of them. You know, uh, I just have them like set up for bundles. Like you can get all my games for five bucks and I sell a few yeah. bundles a month, you know? There you go. Um, and you know, it's, uh, am I ever going to get rich off of them? No, but I enjoyed making them. And, right. uh, they get me access to markets that, I mean, the overlap between people who play role-playing games and read books like what we write, it's its a circle. It's not a Venn diagram, it's a circle, you know? I've noticed this, yes. And so, it, you know, it's something that gets me into areas that I might not be otherwise. So I, I definitely think it, you could go the itch route or the drive the RPG mm -hmm. route, you know, kickstart it, whatever. I, the, the, the demand is there. Um, and it sounds like just the what you have said so far like i'm very intrigued uh i would definitely uh jump on this so um i say i say go for it uh well like i said i i think i appreciate that i think the struggle is one you got to know what you're doing when you kickstart and i yeah. wouldn't i would be a, right you know the, the monkey the dog flailing around at the keyboard right oh yeah um and and you really have to have a, a people you've got to have a wide base and mm -hmm. i do not have that at all well yeah, i will good. also say this the mork borg people uh they are actually good about backing kickstarters that are doing like that that swamp one i was talking about yeah. they backed that one um so they're pretty good about actually spreading the word about people that are doing stuff with their ip so you don't have to have a lot of friends you just have to get on their radar and get them yeah. to share like hey we saw this, we backed it. We think it looks cool. Y'all should back it. And then all the people who love Morkborg will jump on it. So, well, I think right now my thought process is to complete the sort of the basic cut, you know, yeah. write it up in text and markdown, get all the basic cut down. And then, like you, I'm an affinity guy. So, just crack open affinity publisher, buy, you know, spend, I don't know, $70, $100 in fonts. Because yeah. it seems to you need about 60,000 fonts to do, a, mm -hmm. to do anything Morkborg. And then yeah. start, I've been leveraging the, the hell out of mid-journey and procreate because I do a little bit of art myself. Yeah. And then sort of see how far that gets me. Because I'd really, if I were to ever go down that path, I'd, I, I'd rather, I'd want you to be able to see at least some shots of something. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just a here's my, I mean, I, most of these Kickstarters, I mean, they are like professional produced advertisements. I mean, it's almost like you spend five grand on the advertisement to try right. to get backers for something. So my, in a perfect world, really what I would love to do is I would love to be able to finally get the flower eater, fistful of lies, whatever I call it, get that out in, in fiction or RPG form because it's been such a, it's been such a fun story to tell. Yeah. It's such an, an evocative world. It's so, so strange and, um, you know, emotional, so, uh, so dark and so um, twisted that I've enjoyed the hell out of it. And I just mm -hmm. can't figure out a way to get it to someone else. Right. So the thought of designing this, this RPG was mainly I can take from Merck all the things that it's good at. I mean, it's got great mm -hmm. random tables. It's got a great, uh, you know, four, three, four attribute uh, model. The mm -hmm. the fighting model is good. The, you know, the the total number of words in the Merkborg main book is like 4,000 or something. Yeah, it's not it's, a lot. It, it's not <laughs> a lot. 
And so I, I, I mean, I'm, you know, that's like an afternoon of writing for me. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I've already got about half of it constructed and now it's the, you know, trying to get that, the rest of that put together and then let it simmer, you know, go through mm-hmm. some iterations and stuff and then just see, you know, try to piece something together. I, I don't know that it would work out. Um, but the, the thing with Kickstarters that gets me is I, it's an art, man. It's an yeah. art doing it. It is. You really have to know what you're doing. I mean, I've almost seen people that whose job it is to make Kickstarter successful. I mean, it seems yeah. like a whole cottage industry. And I, I mean, yeah. honestly, I'm like your, your, you know, your uncle that can't figure out how to turn a VCR <laughs> on. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm like, wow, did I just age myself? There? <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm in a similar boat. Um, uh, I, I have no experience with Kickstarter other than just backing them, but mm-hmm. I, I really want to do audiobooks for my series. You know, that's right. the number one question I get asked is, can I get this an audiobook? And it's no, um, cause it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I keep toying with the idea of, you know, kickstarting. Uh, an audiobook version uh, but it's one of those yeah it's you know there are people that you can hire to run it for you but you know at that point that's just another expense you know yeah. is there anyone who does it cheap enough would I be better off just paying for the the audiobook yeah. out of pocket at that point yeah. you know so uh, no. yeah I I definitely I definitely understand that reservation because it it is very daunting it is it is. And I, you know, if you ever decide you want to do audiobooks, there's a gentleman who I've known for uh, a while now, a guy by the name of Duffy Webster. Um, you find Duffy on uh, on Twitter as well as a couple other places. Duffy does the voices for lots of mobile games. Yeah. And he does, uh, he narrates a couple of uh, books that I've listened to. The guy has an incredible range. I mean, it's like, it's like meeting a cartoon character, right? Yeah. When you talk to him, because he can do, he can, he can do women, men, kids, old people. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. So if you do decide you're looking for someone, I, I would highly recommend talking to Duffy because yeah, it's like, how it, in other words, if you need like four voices for your story, he, you're getting four voices in one person. Yeah. And it is, it is cool as hell to watch him do what he does or, you know, just yeah. listen to him. Right. Every once yeah. in a while I talk to him and I feel like I'm talking to like a, like a TV person. I mean, the guy's got an <laughs> IMDB page for Christ's sake. But yeah, he's uh, he's really great down to earth guy. Super, super easy to talk to. And just like the like the, the police, the guy from Police Academy, you know? Like, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, he's like that. Right? A guy can do a gazillion voices. It's uh, yeah. it's a lot of fun. So if you if you're looking for somebody to uh, to voice your series, I can't uh, I can't recommend him uh, highly. enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I'll, I'll definitely look into that because I, I am slow. It's basically I want to see how sales go on book four. I'm hoping sure. that I can sell enough of book four to, it, I won't sell enough to pay for, uh, you know, an audio book, but I'm hoping I can get enough to kind of defray the costs to a point sure. where I feel it's affordable. Yeah. Um, but I, the other thing I was going to say, and this is something that I will be doing in the future. I'm not, I'm not in the position to do it now because uh, it wouldn't be beneficial to me yet. But mm-hmm. I, I write across a number of genres. You know, I have horror stuff. I have fantasy stuff. I have I have a number of fantasy worlds, uh, things like that. And uh, you're talking about like, what do you do with these short stories? You know, um, and my intention is to eventually, uh, I 
when I first got started, all I wrote was short stories. So I have a ton of short stories just lying around. And so I will eventually be releasing them as like anthologies, which I realize won't sell well to anyone that's not already a, a Bob fan. But um, that my intention is to, once I have an, enough of these kind of uh, uh, other things to showcase to release an anthology that's, I don't know, the worlds of Bob, where I put a couple of short stories from each of my IPs in there as like, I, again, I don't expect to sell a ton of them, but to have something that I can have at my booth when I'm at conventions where someone's kind of on the fence, be like, look, buy this book. It gives you a little, it's got some excerpts of some of my urban fantasy. You know, it's got some of my regular fantasy. It's got some of my horror. Just read this. Um, and you'll get a taste for what I do and you can find out what you like most and then go buy more of that. So something long-term you might consider is doing something like that. It's kind of showcase yeah, all your different stuff. IPs. Yeah, no, I, I've done something exactly like that. I produced a, an anthology book with all of my shorts or with, you know, I think it was like 10 of them because they yeah. were about they average around 6,000 words each. But I, again, Perfect. I never produced, I never actually put it out again. Um, when you, you get to a point, like I said, during the pandemic, it was sort of like, you know, maybe marketing these things isn't really, <laughs> it's not something I'm inherently good at, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's what made, that's where, where I went down the Vela route, was that yeah. I knew that it was, you basically, I'm putting it up there in the random hope that Amazon happens to put it in front of somebody and, and someone sees it, because, you know, yeah. and that doesn't always happen. My last two Velas have not seen anywhere near the number of um viewers or readers that the first few did so mm -hmm. you never know it's it's, yeah. a, it's a crap shoot but it really is you no know, it, it and i think that's really the struggle you can if like you said if you're going to trade shows and conventions and conferences and stuff like that and cons you know you're you've got a chance to get in front of people i've got a friend of mine that swears by those I mean, he's a he's like a one-man convention machine yeah um i don't do as well with those mm. kinds of things. Not that I've ever done one, but yeah. it's just not a real fit. I mean, you got to have a certain personality to, to, to enjoy <laughs> being there and interacting and, and, you know, almost like a carnival hawker. I mean, you got to yeah. get them into your booth and you got to do your, you know, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you reaching my quota for human interaction for the month today. Bob. Yeah. So this, I, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, um, no, no, no. But, uh, I, but yeah, no, I get that. I do. I do. I do get that. Um, I will say uh, one thing. Uh, I have a guy like your friend that he he doesn't sell that well online uh, by his own admission, but he sells really well in person. He's really good at making those sales. Um, and so uh, uh, splitting a booth with him. He's good at getting people to the booth. I'm not as good at getting people to the booth. But once he gets them there, then all I have to do is say, oh, yeah, I write about a redneck wizard with a crippling meth addiction. And they either ask for more or they go back to talking to him. <laughs> you know, uh, make, make, makes it easy. So, um, but yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely not for everyone. I, I can definitely say that. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm not much of a people person. I do enjoy conventions. I just love the the atmosphere selling right. can get very draining very quickly oh, yeah. um oh for sure but oof 
All right. Well, we we've gone way sideways. So let's let's rein it back in for a minute. We got one last sure. good question for you, sure. and then we'll then we'll wrap things up. But so uh, uh, a hero of mine is an author named John Harkness, and he talks about how no matter how much you write, you cannot write as fast as people can read. Although you come pretty damn close. Yeah, um, I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you're you're the exception. Um, but, uh, but so he talks about because of that, as authors, we should always be, you know, promoting other authors like you did with Marty's, you know, uh, uh, first looks, first looks. And so, and me doing this, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. So it's a two-part question. One, who is an author hero of yours? And then who is an author you think we should be checking out that maybe we aren't? I, you know, I would say it's going to, it's probably going to be the same person. Um, okay. I'm, I, I, as a gentleman who I've known now for about a year or so, uh, he's my, my con- convention friend. Um, you'll meet these people in your life that are, are like the glass is always half full kind of people, even when mm-hmm. the glass is not half full. Right. I mean, this is, this is one of those guys that's, that's always positive. That's always, you know, sort of moving forward, always trying the next, uh, thing he writes, a, a, a funny and um, offbeat uh, sort of horror comedy series. Uh, he's done two of them. He's in the second one now. His first one is uh, Monsters of the Midwest. So mm-hmm. the first one is like, um, oh, uh, Wisconsin, let's see, Wisconsin Vampire. And then uh-huh. um, the next one is uh, like uh, to the werewolf story. Oh, Jesus, I'm blanking on it right now. But it's it's um, then there's undead cheesehead is I think the third one. <laughs> I love uh, that. Yeah, the first book I had to go grab it from my library. The first book is Wisconsin Vamp, right? Yeah. And um, let's see, booze bowling, bake sales, bar fights, babes, blood, and karaoke. Who knew <laughs> that being undead would make life so exciting, right? And and uh, listen, Scott Burtness is the author. And um, he's got a, uh, a sort of, uh, he's got a, a sharp wit, right? Mm-hmm. And he captures that kind of Midwestern uh, folksiness um, in, his, in his stories. Uh, yeah. It really does. And he does a hell of a job with it. And he's done a second series, which is the, this Oracle series, which is a paranormal uh, uh, effects repossession. So like mm. if you, break up with somebody and they have your silver spoon of happiness or something there, you know, <laughs> his shape-shifting character will go and get it for you. And um, one of the things Scott really does well is he researches all these truly strange monsters, things that I have never um, heard of. I have to yeah. go and look them up. I mean, he had a, <laughs> his whole, his, one of his recent books I read featured a, a corn wraith. And I had to go look up what a corn wraith was because I didn't even know such a thing existed. Yeah. And um, it was, of course, you know, yes, it probably doesn't exist, but the concept. <laughs> of it so it right. was really cool to read uh, this kind of stuff. And then it gave me, it inspired me to go and to, re- to, uh, to look up a lot of this stuff. And mm-hmm. then really Scott as a, as a, an author, but also as an individual, he's a, he's a ceaselessly, proactive and positive individual and having those kind of people around you, even when you're probably not like that is, is really great. 
um, I like uh, I like Scott a lot. He's always um, he's always trying something new and yeah. you know out at his conventions and doing stuff. It, if you if you think about it, if it sounds at all like it's in your wheelhouse, um, Scott Burtness and uh, B U R T N E S S and his Wisconsin Vamp is the first of his uh, his first series, and then the uh, you'll find his name, and then you'll find the rest of the, yeah. the stuff he's done. But he's a he's a really just a good person, and um, I've enjoyed being his friend, um, drinking beer with him. And uh, and laughing about um, the crazy zany stories that float around his head. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, I actually just found him. Yeah, he's on KU. I'm uh, adding him to my list. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah, that's what we well, want. Yeah. Well, so to wrap things up, uh, tell folks where can they find you and where can they find your books. Well, if you drive south and go past that line where Bugs Money was sawing <laughs> off, no. Um, so all of my, uh, you can find me on, uh, at, uh, martin-shannon.com, which is just a link tree where I keep all my stuff. Uh, we're very, you know, uh, fancy, fr- fancy rich here when websites. So we <laughs> have all of my links there. Um, that'll take you to the Vela's as well as the, the books. The novels are all at, at Amazon or again, off that link tree books one and two of Tales of Weird Florida are completely free and digital. I won't mail you a physical copy for free, but I make about as much off the free books as I make if you buy the physical copy. So it's roughly the same. Yeah. Um, but you are welcome to, uh, you know, if you're interested at all in what I write, you're welcome to check out either of those to, uh, to grab them and hopefully enjoy them. If not, you leave your review at uh, Bob's site and let him know that, <laughs> that you didn't like it. But if you yeah. loved it, then leave your review at Amazon and tell them uh, how much you enjoyed it, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> love it. All right. Well, Martin, this is... Oh, go ahead. If you love Vela's, if you find you love the, the concept of Vela's, you'll find all of my Vela's under my name, uh, under Martin Shannon as a tag on the Amazon Vela system. And there's right now there's four of them. There's uh, the last sunrise. There is uh, the pearl. The uh, the pearl is a is a uh, a sort of post apocalyptic uh, horror with uh, with a disjoint narrative. So it's going backwards and forwards to try to figure out how this terrible event happened. Um, there is an 80s style science fiction thriller called Deep Drop, and a, a tongue in cheek Buffy like Buffy meets supernatural called monster hunters for hire nice nice love it well martin it has been an absolute delight having you on uh so glad you were able to make it this has been uh, a, a great great interview I, i've had a blast so uh hopefully get you back on again at some point in the future um yeah maybe i'll be touting my uh my crazy rpg game book the next time yeah no that, that would be great um I, uh, I, I do dearly. Oh, I'll, I'll give you a quick recommendation. If you like monster of the week, which I haven't played yet, I will admit I have the rule book, haven't played it, but, uh, you might check out kids on bikes. I have it right here. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I have run some, I have run kids on bikes and I did really enjoy it. So, um, so, all right. Well, uh, as again, Martin Shannon, great having you on. Uh, and guys, uh, till next time, y'all be good now. 
for taking the time to check out another exciting episode of Southern Fried Fantasy. If you would, you know the drill. Give us a like, subscribe, follow, all that jazz. We'll appreciate you. Until next time, y'all. is part of the Tales by Bob network. To see all our great shows, go to talesbybob.com.